Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is my dear friend, Dr. Rihanna Anderson. She is an assistant professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education. I will let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, Max. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure is really, mine. <laughs> really excited to be here. So I guess a few words about me. All you really need to know is like Detroit, chocolate, and maybe that's it. Really, those two words are the best things to describe me. Um, born and raised in this fantastic city of Detroit and have now returned. So I'm really excited to be back in the city. Um, I love to eat a lot. So chocolate is up there. Chocolate and bread are really important <laughs> for me. Yes. Um, and I've really been all across the U.S. in terms of working or training. So um, I started at the University of Michigan for undergrad, went to University of Virginia for my Ph.D., um, did a clinical internship at Yale and a residency at Penn, did Teach for America in Atlanta, taught in uh, the fantastic neighborhoods in Atlanta, Georgia, and then was a professor at USC at one point. So really have been from LA to New Haven and now back to Detroit. That's, that's right. We have lived in a lot of the same places. <laughs> we I, have. I, it's like I've been following you. I lived in Atlanta. <laughs> I lived in New Haven. I lived yes. in Philly. And you helped me find housing twice. So. Listen, God is good. Thank you, housing. Yes. All right. So you do research um, over there in Detroit. Uh, yes. And part of your work is... Um, as I understand it, um, helping Black families um, like face or handle racism? Yeah, so I, what I like to say is that I know Black families are already experts in the ways that they unite as a family around the issues of race and racism. And I just happen to have a few clinical therapeutic skills that I can lend. So mm -hmm. I provide that to the conversation um, but really, families have been engaging in these conversations for decades with how to go about dealing with what's going on. So it's it's less me and more about here's some strategies or here's some some tips and communicating that can better prepare your family for what's going on. I see. And your program's name is Embrace, which I love. What does Embrace mean? <laughs> yeah. So this it's always always a funny story. So I'm really good at coming up with um, names and acronyms, and I was like around the term prep, like preparing our racial something. Like I was really uh, swimming in the PR kind of land, like what mm -hmm. all these words that started with PR. And then this um, RA on the project came in and he was like, I got it. I was like, you don't have it. He was like, I got it. I was like, you do not have it. Like I've got the name. He was like, embrace. And then he said, engaging, managing and bonding through race. And I was like, you got it. That's exactly what this <laughs> Shut that's exactly up. What Yeah. So thank you so much for, for naming the program Lloyd Matthew Talley, who is now a postdoc at the University of Michigan. So everybody just keeps following each other, Max. But um, yeah, engaging, managing, and bonding through race. Very nice. So as you mentioned, right, Black families are, are experts at bonding through race. I mean, even in the proverbial Black family, we see it happen like on Black Twitter. Yeah. Um, just like mm. black social media spaces yeah. um, within the sort of like family at home um, structure I'm curious first of all at baseline right how do black families you know deal with uh, experiences and stressors that come with racism yeah I mean I think what we see is that 
racism is a very stressful form of, um, if I could repeat myself, of stress, right? So, mm-hmm. so when we talk about general stressors or environmental stressors, there's a number of things that people contend with all the time. Um, some things are time limited or, or one time only, and some things are more chronic or cumulative. Racism is one of these things where over decades, over generations, over uh, really the, the history of someone's life from gestation to the grave, we see somebody contending with racism in ways that are very challenging for their mental and physical health and well-being. So when we're talking about baseline, it's actually even hard to say, like, at what point is there a baseline? We're, right. we're facing racism literally in utero, right? So it's like not a time where we're in this world where racism is not going to impact us. But when they first get to our program, what we find is that people tend to think that they can cope quite well with, with racism. Um, one might even say that they have a like inflated sense of their ability to cope. But as we stress them, which is a, a typical stress and coping kind of intervention, if you stress someone, if you provide them with the type of stress that you're trying to focus on, um, they tend to say, okay, maybe my coping skills weren't as great as I thought that they were. So like mm-hmm. maybe my, my ability to cope is actually a little lower than I originally said. And as we provide more strategies over time and we continue to practice, they tend to have improved coping skills uh, throughout the duration of Embrace. Got it. Now, you know, let's sort of break it down, right? Because racism takes place in so many different forms and, mm-hmm. and I'm sure how we handle or how we respond to its different forms probably differs, right? So we have structural racism, uh, interpersonal racism, and like cultural racism. And Mm -hmm. the ways we face all three are so different. Um, Or even the way we're able to react to, you know, each one of those probably different. So I guess, how do you disentangle um, how people react to structural racism versus like cultural racism versus interpersonal racism? Yeah, that's a great question, Max. And and there are even more than those three, right? So we can't, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to even pin down here all the forms of racism, though, you know, clearly we have literature that explores it all. I think what we do with Embrace, rather than defining what is racism or what discrimination is for the families, we let them tell us what those experiences are for them. And oftentimes, because we are dealing with discrimination, we tend to get a lot of interpersonal experiences or, or like these behavioral demonstrations of what racism is. Someone followed me closely in the store or I saw someone um, pull this person over and they didn't do anything wrong. When you, when you have these types of uh, more interpersonal experiences, um, that's the first thing that tends to come to people's minds. And that's because it's a, a clinical and a behavioral intervention, we tend to kind of live in that space. Mm-hmm. But what is really interesting about Embrace is that on its face, um, with, its, with families, it's interpersonal, but the structure of Embrace to better train clinicians as well on how to deal with these types of issues gets at more of these structural and sy- systemic um, issues of how do we better train our clinicians mm-hmm. to work with um, Black families and issues of race. So we're, we're really trying to intervene at a provisional level, at a systems level, and with families individually. So we are trying to target different areas there, but, but within the intervention itself, we don't take the time to uh, spell out and to parse out what these things are because it's, 
it's not as germane to the families as how do you just like contend with whatever comes your way? How can you feel efficacious, feel fortified in whatever comes your way? How can you lean on your family for whatever that is? Got it. That makes sense. And so what do some of the stressors that mimic what people face out in the real world um, look like in your program? Can you say a little more about that? So you said, you know, in your stress and cope um, type intervention, Mm -hmm. you stress the families or your participants, Mm -hmm. um, they realize that maybe they're not so good at coping. And I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. what are some of the stressors that you use in your intervention? Like, do you expose people to kind like some kinds of videos or news or just yeah yeah no that's a a great question so uh we actually use a lot of the family's own experiences so Mm -hmm. a a narrative-based approach where we're asking families to try to think about one stressful incident that they had and we use that as a benchmark throughout the entire program um, to kind of see how they are able to deal with not only that stressor Mm -hmm. um, but other stressors that they're now bringing up um throughout. So we use their, their, their own stories, their own narration. But then to your point, yes, we have media that we might use. So um, episodes of Blackish is something that we really love to bring into the space where we are having them watch families. So it's like this meta moment. Oh, yeah, that's um, really cool. Yeah. But then we also say, um, like, get on the internet and take a look at what's going on. So, so right now, right, we're in the midst of something that when the pandemic first hit, I think we were all maybe naively hoping that there was no racial element to it. And, and everyone was talking about the great equalizer and everybody was saying how um, it's impacting all of us. Right. But those who knew, knew. <laughs> but those who knew, knew. And two weeks into it, you start seeing these um, fissures with respect to um, to who it's impacting. So even if we have families enrolled right now, which of course we can't because of um, legal um, and ethical issues, then we would be able to say like, this is, this is actually literally what we're talking about. Like you're being turned away at greater rates. You're um, being denied, you know, services. Your hospitals can't contain your family as much. Like how does that make you feel what mm-hmm. how stressful is that thing for you we use real world stuff to to also elicit that stress got it that makes sense uh and so then what are new ways or what are ways in which you're sort of contributing the equipping or or equipping what's the term sorry <laughs> no you second got it equipping <laughs> equipping okay. that was great yes. second language <laughs> in the speaker right here um so i think what I love most about Embrace and what I joke uh, with when I'm like at conferences and stuff, I tell people if I knew the secret, like the keys to having everyone be well with respect to race and racism, I'd be so rich. Like you wouldn't be able to book (laughs) me for that conference. I would be in a private jet flying around rich, skipping and happy, but there's no one way to deal with racism. And um, unfortunately our families can't, necessarily stop racism with their practices because there's a there there's a whole second party right or there's a mm-hmm. whole system or there's a whole institution so um the i i think what i try to focus on the most is what coping strategies work best for you and your family what is working in this moment for that specific thing for other things that might look like it how can we support that coping strategy so mm-hmm. as an example 
one of the things that Black families use when they talk to each other might be this um, idea of promotion of mistrust. So I think most of us have heard somebody say like, well, you know, the white man, dot, 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 or <laughs> you can't trust that police officer because dot, 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 dot. So there, there might be this generalization that families use to express their discontent about a person or a, a group or um, a structure even. Yeah. Right. So people might be upset and frustrated and expressing distrust. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Like, right. Like if, if you don't want your kids to get picked up wrongly by the police, or you don't want them to, you know, face somebody who reminds you of somebody who did you wrong, then that like psychologically makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. What we know though, is once we start to generalize one thing to an entire group of people, that's really anxiety provoking for kids that can stress them out quite a bit, particularly if that child has to interact with some of those people quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying the whole idea is wrong and telling people here's the right way to cope with it, we just ask them through clinical kind of strategies, uh, what is it that you're seeing when you tell your child that? How do you think your child is feeling? Oh, you noticed them crying at some point when you were saying that? How did you feel when you saw them cry? Did it make you feel better? So we go through this whole Socratic questioning of, is it useful for you? And if it's not, what would you like? What would you like to be able to do? What, what is it that you're trying to get your child to do? So we go through Socratic questioning and alternative solutions for maybe another approach that is expressing the one thing that happened to you and saying this is how you feel and letting your child come to some decision on how they would want to treat that person or that group. Got it. That makes sense. That sounds like a really cool approach. Yeah. Um, and so I guess what are you seeing in terms of outcomes in, in the program? Like how are, what are your participants reporting, right? In terms of how uh, they feel about yeah. responding to experiences of racism. Yeah, so um, we've done a pilot in Philly. So when I was um, a, a resident or a fellow at Penn, I was able to um, have 15 fantastic families participate. And uh, the biggest outcome difference is just, as we've been talking about this perception of coping. So people believe that they can cope better with discrimination by the time they leave out of the program, um, even more so than when they first came in. So they, they may come in with a certain belief it's going to drop a bit when we stress them out and then it's going to go up, but it goes up beyond even what they came in with. So some people don't, don't want to be stressed out because they fear they're never going to um, rise back up to the level that they were. But we're actually finding that not only are they getting back to that level, they're getting above that. So they're coping better. Mm -hmm. And then our ultimate goal is to be able to take a look at um, what we call racial socialization competency. So I know that sounds like a lot of jargon, but what you and I have been discussing is this idea of the talk, right? So black families have right. the talk with their kids and how we've measured the talk before has been how frequently do you do this thing? Um, and what are the constant areas that you discuss with your kid? Now I am an interventionist. I'm also a family therapist and I don't really, um, see a lot of families say like I told them to do their homework four times and then they did their homework it's like how effective was that strategy were you able to you know give this demand or this conversation in a way that was um, effective rather than frequent mm 
So I wanted to change this idea of um, content and frequency with this idea of competency. How well can you deliver these talks? Do your, does your family engage in, the, in them in ways that make you feel um, efficacious and skillful? So what we're trying to do in our current work is measure the ways in which families competently, skillfully, efficaciously, um, and a reduction in stress um, wise with respect to those racial socialization conversations. Got it. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned, you know, stress and whatnot. And as we know, I mean, in, in society in general, uh, mental health can be a little bit of a taboo um, subject um, or a stigmatized subject. But even within minority communities, within the Black community, uh, you know, talking about mental health or engaging with sort of like, I guess, healthy practices related to mental health um, like, I don't know, seeking therapy or mm -hmm. uh, seeing a psychiatrist can be uh, viewed um, as taboo or odd. Maybe sometimes people rely on religiosity. Um, what, I guess, as part of your work, do you approach any of that? Yeah, um, <laughs> there is a very clear stigma within the Black community um, with respect to mental health. And I think you, you see it coming out in a lot of ways. So you, you talked about religiosity, which is what we typically consider an adaptive or useful coping strategy. Um, but even if we're talking about the use of alcohol or marijuana as an example, um, or cannabis rather, we have reports that show time and time and time again that the uses of these things are not greater for black mm -hmm. folks than it is for other people, except when we're looking at certain types of stressors. So discrimination in particular, if you throw that in the mix, especially at great levels, you see people trying to cope with it in the best way that they can. Mm -hmm. Let me numb myself just real quick, because I know I got to go back in the world again tomorrow. It might be more of this stuff, but I need to just numb myself real quick. Like that, that approach, again, to me, makes a lot of sense. Now, whether it's beneficial long-term. Is it going to like teach you how to contend with this stress? Is it going to reduce discrimination? Those are things that, again, we're not really talking about, but, but in that moment, that makes a lot of sense. Right. So when we're talking about therapy, which tends to be a Western practice, it tends to be for the people who are wealthy. Like if, if we name it, it tends to be a white practice mm -hmm. uh, for folks who have time, energy, resources, et cetera. Like that's not something that, would make a lot of sense if we're dealing with things that are time limited and specific to the experiences that black and brown folks are going through. Mm -hmm. All that being said, though, um, there are some opportunities for self-growth, for um, individual practices, group practices like with your family or, or spouse that can really be important for your um, development. And, and so as a psychologist, some colleagues and I were really thinking through, like, how do we promote not only these coping strategies that you and I have already talked about, but how can we actually make therapy more palatable? How can we make mental health less stigmatized? And we've uh, come up with some translational approaches, and one of them is our Mental Health Minute. Which I which, love. <laughs> thank you, Max. So uh, our Mental Health Minute is uh, by my colleague and I, Dr. Sean Jones, who's at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, we take a few different approaches. Our main approach was to take a video, which we tried to get down to one minute, 
typically went about two or three minutes, but you know, it was good and that's all that matters. <laughs> so we take um, a minute for your mind and we try to talk about um, mental health issues that are impacting the black community. And then as he and I moved apart, we thought about what other ways can we keep it going. So we have done a few podcasts to try to keep our voice on the record. And we brought in some interns who are now doing um, some other just media-based work for us. So um, yeah, we're trying to bring it into vogue. We're trying to make mental health like common, accessible, um, and, and putting a face on it of like, I would go to those two people as my therapist because mm -hmm. they're cool, you know? And so how do people, like, what's been the reaction of your audience um, to our Mental Health Minute? Yeah, I, I mean, we think it's gone pretty well. We've got, a, a, you especially have, like, this one family member that's always going to send you an email, like, okay, nephew, I see you. Like, we're always getting, <laughs> <laughs> we're always getting that, which is cool. Um, but of course, it, it means the most to us when we're getting it to folks that are not our colleagues who we don't know. And they're saying, I learned so much about this. Thank you for that. Or they'll, you know, hit us in the DM or whatever, giving some sort of feedback to um, what it is that we're doing. And the one other thing that I think, you know, our, the purpose for this was to make it translate to the community. But we also recently won an award on the uh, professional side so the American Psychological Association had a contest for two-minute videos and we just looked at each other like if this isn't our award like we don't know whose it is so we submitted one of our videos actually on stress and um, we, we won an award for that um, a, across 200 other videos so um, both in the academic and the community spaces we're really trying to say like we know what we're talking about and we're relatable holler at your kids, you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. And because we're both academics, um, I guess, are, are you doing any research also related to uh, like my mental health, uh, our mental health uh, minute or like, I don't know, your audience? I'm just curious. Yeah, we, we've thought about that. And we, the, I think the closest thing that we've gotten to it is uh, writing a paper on just the development of some sort of media um, platform so that's under review right now but um, giving people the sense of like it is not it is five thousand percent not enough to write your paper and be done with it like that is just absolutely not something you can do in 2020 you got to get an infographic you got to figure out how to tweet about it in 280 <laughs> characters you have to figure out a way to get on a podcast like there's just not enough in us writing academic articles for each other right. anymore. And that's what we were really trying no, to do. No, I love it, I love it. I mean, this is why yeah. you're on this podcast right now. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, otherwise though, we have not like done an analytic kind of approach to it. And it's something that we would love to do, but we're already so stretched right. thin that it's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard. So we're in kind of a crazy moment. Um, and yes. you already mentioned that earlier when we were talking about how Black families um, deal with um, the stress related to racism. So we're in a pandemic. A lot of people are at home um, losing their jobs. Um, but also amongst the people who, you know, remained employed or like, I guess, are deemed the quote unquote uh, essential workers. Mm -hmm. There are a lot, mm -hmm. right, a lot of low income um, black and brown people who are like you know working as our grocery store clerks or um mm -hmm. you know like you know janitorial staff in our hospitals like those businesses 
or establishments that have to remain open. And I can't imagine, right, the stress that must come with like being among a mostly black workforce um, and, um, you know, wondering like, am I gonna get sick? Um, what's mm -hmm. going on with my kids at home? Am I gonna get my kids sick? Uh, mm -hmm. So, and then seeing all the reports about, you know, how much more uh, COVID-19 is affecting uh, black people, right? And like, I don't know, people yeah. can't really hold funerals right now, like all, like all right. many layers, yeah. right? So yeah. there is that almost third party stress that, some, that many of us are experiencing related to these like, you know, structural forces and also the like in-person stress that those who are currently working in those settings or not working because business has got to be closed um, are experiencing. Yeah. So first question related to that is like, what, you know, from your experience as both a family therapist, but also, you know, doing our mental health minute, right? What do you, I guess, what's your advice, right? To families who are dealing with the um, secondhand is the term I was looking for earlier when I say third party, secondhand stress, right? Of witnessing COVID-19 kind of um, ravaging through black families and black communities across the country right now. Yeah. I mean, the, there have been so many think pieces that I've you know heard, read about this or so many webinars I've sat on now where people are, are going back and forth. And I think the main advice is just you have to be willing to talk to the people in your family about how you're feeling, which if I could add my own kind of perspective is you got to know how you're feeling mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So something that um, Sean, who's my co-host on Armin's Health Minute, what he and I were talking about, because I was going through a, a grieving uh, stage at one point and I needed to talk to someone. So I called him um, and I was able to figure out like, some things including my job hasn't given me time to process any of this so as the second the university made the announcement that we were going to switch online we had a two-day uh, time frame to switch all of our stuff online and then two days later my research got canned and then a day after that I got sick and it, like all these things were happening in succession and I had not for three weeks taken a moment to myself to say, this is bananas. Mm -hmm. This is nuts. Like we are in a time that is absolutely bananas, changing every minute from edicts and laws and, and whatever. And there are things that I need to grieve. There are people I need to grieve. I'm feeling survivor's guilt. There, there was just so much compounded in that moment. Mm -hmm and my job and frankly our culture do a disservice to us by not giving us space to function and to breathe and to and to think about how am i feeling what is it that i am experiencing in this mm -hmm. moment so the first thing that i would really recommend and i again you you mentioned some excellent points on why this might be hard but if we have 5 minutes that we can close a door it could be a closet door it could be a bathroom door it could be you know a break room door at work if you still have to go finding some simple time to yourself to just do a quick check-in with your body your mind and say how am i feeling it's okay if i don't feel great like no one's telling you in this moment you got to be okay just how are you feeling you got to get some words some language some reactions some emojis like whatever 
you want to put on wax like how am I going to feel in this moment how how what what's going on with my body once you feel how you feel know how you feel etc now you can start to talk to your kids your kids are like mom like what's going on in this world it's okay to say I don't flipping know I I do not know what's happening right now I don't know what we're gonna do like I don't know I don't know getting that off your chest letting your kids kind of see that and experience that with you might be enough for today right Mm -hmm. and maybe tomorrow you need to come back and say like all right i thought some more about it here's what i got right but like you don't have to hold it all together right now because who frankly knows what like who knows what's going on so i'm on the one hand not advocating you like run around your house flailing your hands up in the air and saying like wow we're all gonna die like i don't want you to do that that's that's a little scary and again anxiety provoking for your kids but they need to know how you're feeling and you need to be able to express that in an authentic way to them. And again, just being uncertain at the beginning might be the step that you're at, but really starting to think through um, what we would advocate for and embrace, which is like, no matter what, this family still got you. Like, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Like we as a unit, like we got each other, we love each other and we're going to, we're going to make it through this as strong as we can mm-hmm. right? so some sort of assurance at the end to really let them know that the family unit is like fighting for each other and and our survival collectively Whew. that's a lot <laughs> that was a lot my, my bad on that that was a lot yeah well dr anderson thank you so much for you know sharing your knowledge and your experience with us it is truly my pleasure, and I'm uh, grateful to be um, in this time with people who I love and who are uh, changing the world. So thank you for your contribution to everything that, that we're doing in this time and forevermore, really. I look forward to maybe having you again. You know, we probably got more to talk about um, mental health. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.